Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hi, this is Visual Workplace Radio, and I am Gwendolyn Galsworth, your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. And in each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system, whether you work in a hospital, a factory, an office, how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living landscape of work through visual devices and visual systems, how to install the language of our current system, our current level of excellence, even if that level is not quite as high as we wish it would be or know it will be, how do we install that and make it concrete and specific? We do that by implementing visual devices, visual mini systems, visual management systems, and then we can literally see how we think and track how that thinking functions because we've captured it physically by way of these visual solutions. We've embedded that thinking into that landscape of work. Again, whether it's a factory, hospital, office, or open pit mine. And why do we do it? We do it because we get phenomenal bottom line results. Stunning, 15 to 30% increase in productivity, rock solid safety, vastly, I beg your pardon, I hope you can fix that. Vastly improved quality, on-time delivery, all the time, every time, and shrinking costs. And we do it for the splendid cultural alignment that results from a workplace that speaks, a spirited, engaged, and contributing workforce on all levels, not just value-add level, but indeed the CEO and the plant manager and all managers. They all have a voice. It is a physical voice. In, form, in the form of visual devices. And there's a third reason we do it. We do it so we can enjoy ourselves at work. We can do the dance of work. We can perform with exactitude, and the enterprise becomes increasingly aligned, fluid, flexible. It's fun. And to that I say, oh, wonderful. And I also say, welcome. Welcome. In our last episode, which is my first show in nearly three years, (laughs) last week, we began to set up some of the basic concepts and principles of workplace visuality, the visual workplace, how visual information sharing works, how it surrounds us every day, and it does. In the community, visual information sharing is how we get around And it is the basis of our economy. And you know what? The workplace is a little slower on the uptake. Lean has dominated the operational excellence scene for decades, with the visual workplace seen as a sort of handmaiden to lean. I love that, a handmaiden to lean. Easy on the eyes, so to speak. Helpful to have around. Nice to know and to use, but not mission critical. And you know what? The decades that have transpired have proven that lean has a hole. There is a missing piece, and that missing piece, and that's P-E-A-C-E and P-I-E-C-E, that missing piece is visuality, is visual information sharing. 
We are beginning to understand that the workplace is not just about time and pull and speed, but it is also about information and meaning and adherence. We recognize that these the informational landscape is part of the performance landscape. And if that remains hidden, if that is a secret guarded in the binders and in the file drawers or in someone else's mind, then we don't have the kind of fluidity, responsiveness, and stability that is needed to call ourselves excellence. To call ourselves excellent. Okay? Sometimes... A company will recognize that there's something missing. They'll be deeply into lean and they'll say, you know, somehow, I don't know, there's something. We have this instability. Even though we've got great cells and we've got good pull systems and we're doing our standard work, there's this instability. Some of these gains that we've been taking for granted are beginning to erode. And nobody can tell me why says some manager in an executive position, why are things eroding? Mm -hmm. And usually in response, what happens is that this person increases supervision, requires more training, gives better bonuses, and increases the audits. And you redouble your standard work and you do TWI with great, great focus. And these will have an impact. But they will not build stabilization. They will not build repeatability, reliability all by themselves. The gains will be regained for some time, but then they will begin to erode again. The problem is not with your employees. The problem The instability is not with your employees or these millennials. Have you heard people saying that recently? These darn millennials, they're so hard to work with and they're they're so unreliable and they just do their own thing. The problem is not with your employees. It's not. It's with your process, as you might guess. And these processes have been curated by the lean masters in your organization, and they are really good at their job. Well, you could say the problem is with your employees, but not exactly the way you might think. There is nothing wrong with them. The problem is you're just not speaking their language. Or more accurately, you're not, you're just not letting them speak the language that they want to speak, the language of work, the language of visuality. You are instead relying on habit and muscle memory and commitment and resolve and motivation and a can-do attitude to produce the perfect outcomes you say you want and in fact once had. So there's a lot of misunderstanding about What are the limits of lean? I think the reverse is a better question. What is the potential of workplace visuality? What would happen if we had an information-rich environment that was stable, stable, repeatable, but also spoke? What would it be like if the information, the vital information that we need, was always at our fingertips because we have made it so? 
because we have populated our own workplace with visual devices and visual mini systems. In other words, we have learned to think visually and therefore we have a visual workplace. So that's kind of like the lead in. In this show, we will focus on the blueprint, the kind of secret of the Death Star, if I can mix my metaphors wildly. We will be focusing on the eight building blocks of visual thinking, eight of them. Our premise, my premise, is that it's worth your learning about them. It's worth that you begin to understand how visuality works. The visual workplace or workplace visuality and its subset visual management, I want to emphasize visual management is very important, but it is a subset of the visual workplace. It is, as you'll learn if you stick with this show, one of the 10 doorways. It's a very important doorway, but it's only one. represents about 10 or 12% of what visuality can do for you. That's powerful. Anyway, the visual workplace is a system of thinking first. It is a system of thinking first, then it is a system of doing. Then it is a system that populates visual devices. But when you learn how to think visually, when you teach your workforce how to think visually, that population is not a dozen visual devices or even a hundred visual devices, but thousands of visual devices, thousands of visual devices and visual mini systems because they are created by a workforce that knows how to think this way. And that's what I want to begin to unnest for you today, these eight building blocks. We're only going to be able to go to one of them, the first one, which is eye-driven. And that really is a distinctive departure from most people's thinking about visuality. But it is the heart of the matter, as I hope to demonstrate today. And what happens when the workforce knows how to think visually is that the devices simply multiply. multiply. Visuality beautifully is a pull system. It is the need that leads visual devices into place. You may have guessed by now I am not going to give instruction to your engineers or your managers or your training department to put visual devices in place in order to help others. Not at all. This will not work. You'll be so disappointed. Oh, those beautiful devices and nobody's using it. What's wrong with these people? The devices come from the people and they know how to construct them. I've been doing this for, could it be close to 40 years? It can't be, but I will say over over 30. And I have seen this happen again and again and again where you teach the workforce everyone, including supervisors and managers and the CEO in the boardroom, how to think. And then they create visual devices that become showstoppers for people who come to visit. Oh, my goodness, look at that cool visual device. Do you see how it works? Oh, I want one like that. And then they steal it. They put it in their pocket and they sneak away in the night. (laughs) It's okay. It's thinking you can have it. (laughs) And they bring it to their own their own workplace, and they put it in place, it doesn't work. Oh, my God. And you think it's, you see, I told you it was my workforce. Other workforces, they use this and they use it well. You know, there's a wonderful paradox in visuality. It is, at least as I teach it and as I've developed it over the decades, (laughs) and that is that it is always local, 
but the principles are universal. The thinking, the framework of thinking is universal, but the expression is local. And these devices are peculiar, and the weirder the better is what I always say. Don't worry about standardization. We'll spend at least one show on standardization, but mostly keep this in mind. Most companies standardize too soon before they've had a chance to really relish and enjoy, get, to really get visual devices that are weird enough to become visual best practices. Oh, we've got so many examples of those. So let me proceed. I went off on my little tangent. So once the thinking is in place, the devices multiply. And part of that thinking is how do you make the device more powerful? We call that the four power levels. So all of this has been systematized and it's teachable. And what is, and and that's expected. You know, if you spend 30 years with a model, you're going to have some things to say and you're going to have some frameworks to think about some models, tools, sub-tools, sub-sub-tools, all of that. But what is universal is people want to speak this language. They want the vital information that they need at work to be available to them at the point of use when and as they need it. They want to pull it to them. And they want to get on with their work. They want to do, as Rick L., one of the great value-add associates who became a master visual thinker, they want to do the dance of work. That's another story. I better not go off, otherwise I won't get to the topic today. Okay? But remember, we're not just talking about operator, machinists, nurses, and orderlies and technicians. We're talking about doctors. We're talking about boardroom people. We're talking about the C-level There is no employee and no organizational function that cannot benefit from a deep employment of workplace visuality and visual thinking. Okay? The key question on your journey to a visual workplace, which I consider to be an indispensable strategy for all operational excellence, is not where do we find more devices, what factory do we tour, what office do we go to, what website do we raid, The key question, the core question is how do we create a workforce of visual thinkers? That's long lasting and it's called self-sufficiency. You know, somebody once said, teach a person to fish and they can eat for their whole life. You teach an employee how to think visually and they will continue to contribute in ways that are dazzling. So that is the question for today. How do we create a workforce of visual thinkers? I will be sharing that blueprint. It's called the eight building blocks. Uh, let me just mention, okay, because I once I get rolling on this stuff, I forgot I forget to say, please let me invite you once again to send in your comments and your questions and your photos, I hope, to me at radio at visualworkplace.com. Radio at visualworkplace.com. And please let me invite you to visit our website, visualworkplace.com where you'll find my books and articles and podcasts, a lot, a lot of free stuff. You'll find a calendar of seminars that I'm doing in the U.S. and here and there around the world. You'll find our products and our services, including wonderful, superb online training systems, simply superb. Right now in Pokioke, an operator-led visuality, but soon in all nine of the core courses, 
core methods that make up the visual curriculum. And and in about a month or two, the Shingo Prize is going to be sponsoring those as well. We're just getting our ducks in a row on that one. We're very, very honored and excited. Visualworkplace.com. Now, the eight building blocks. So the eight building blocks of visual thinking is the central framework for the thinking mechanism. How do these pieces or elements work together to give me a thinking framework? It's like a pathway. It's like a new way of looking at problems and looking at how to solve them, solving them permanently. It's the foundation of a 40-floor skyscraper, and that skyscraper is a workplace that speaks. Okay? So, it's going to take us two or three shows to complete the eight building blocks, but today I'm going to begin with the first one, which is called I-Driven. Let me name the eight building blocks so that this is not a secret. (laughs) Here they go. Building block one. And the order is only important in terms of the first one is I-Driven, which I'm going to explain today. The second one, standards. The third, six core questions. The fourth, information deficits. The fifth, motion, which is your lever. You got to have a way, a spade and a shovel to dig in. That's it. Motion is your lever. Work, value field, and motion metrics. Those are the eight. So we're going to tackle I-Driven today, and we're going to talk about the two questions that drive a visual workplace based on that I. Okay. So, I-driven is at the heart of what makes visuality work. That's what makes it a language and not just a bunch of point solutions. I-driven is also what makes visuality the most powerful process for cultural transformation and alignment, I say, on the planet today. It produces amazing results, the I in the I-driven. And and let me clarify, since we are on the radio, this I is the pronoun I. I, you, he, she, we. It is I, myself, me. Self-driven, if you will. We could say I-driven because it's visual. That would be clever, but that's not the cleverness we're talking about today. Let's look at my definition of a visual workplace. I gave it to you last week. Let me give it to you again. It's a very sturdy definition. It's been around for 25 years or so. It really holds up, and it's got some really interesting pivot points. A visual workplace is a work environment. can be a company, can be a department, can be a bench, a work environment that is self-ordering, self-explaining, self-regulating, and self-improving where what is supposed to happen does happen on time, every time, day or night, because of visual devices. The emphasis is because of visual devices, because if you take those devices away, you will not be able to hold on to that description. What is supposed to happen won't happen. I don't care how much TWI and standard work you're doing. Without a firm informational framework that captures the details of your standard work, You have one wave of employees that can do it. The next wave, it's up for grabs. If you take the visual devices away, you will not achieve the description. You will not achieve that outcome. 
Last week I said we were going to Grandma's house. Remember, no questions asked. Take away the road signs and the traffic lights and the lane markings and the pass-don't-pass devices. Take away the speed bumps. And now, go ahead. Get to Grandma's house. You can't get there. You get the opposite. You get unsafety. You get confusion, mistakes, accidents, frustration. You get mayhem. Okay, so you look around the community and see how our community is absolutely anchored in visuality. Go to the airport and you'll understand how vital it is in a work environment. So that's the first definition, definition of a visual workplace. Second definition, definition of visual thinking. Visual thinking is a person's ability, your ability and mine, to recognize motion and the information deficits that trigger that motion, and then to eliminate both through solutions that are visual. I'm going to be spending a long time on motion in detail, but I want to say right now that motion is the footprint of the enemy. The enemy is the information deficit, the missing information. So it's our ability to recognize, to see the footprint so that we know the enemy is there. We'll never see missing information because it isn't there. But we have this footprint, this symptom, motion, moving without working. Ono's fabulous definition. I'll tell you where that came from. I cannot get deflected. I'll never get through the material I wanted today if I keep going on these detours. I'm so excited to be talking to you and sharing this. So that's visual thinking. It's the ability to recognize the footprint of the enemy, and that tells us the enemy is there, and then we get rid of both through solutions that are visual. Because when we take the information deficit away by deploying, implementing a visual device, the deficit goes and the footprint goes. We don't have that disastrous behavior we call motion. So those are the two definitions. There is one simple reason why a visual workplace is needed. People have too many questions. Some of those questions are asked, but most of them are not. Some of those questions are asked. We mostly experience them in the form of interruptions. And the research tells us that it takes us 8 to 10 minutes to recover from an interruption, however long, however short. And most interruptions are questions. Okay? Questions are a form of motion. They signify missing information. But staying closely to the point, some of the questions are asked, most of them are not. People don't ask questions. Some people don't ask questions ever. Let's just focus on that for a moment. We're, going to, we're building the case here. When people don't ask questions, they do one of three things. They do nothing and just wait until the answer shows up on its own. Or they go hunting for the answer. Both of those, by the way, are forms of motion, moving without working. Or they make stuff up and they move ahead on their own best guess. They make stuff up, and sometimes that's good news for the company, but sometimes it is not. Stuff can go wrong, half wrong, all wrong, or even worse, dangerously wrong. 
You may wonder, I did, why people don't ask questions when they have them. I'm a question asker to the point of people wanting me to be quiet. <laughs> I like questions. I have an inquiring mind, I like to say. I have a, cur- a mind that is fed by curiosity. Why don't people ask questions? Well, the answer actually lies in the mysteries of the human heart. Some of us don't ask questions because we don't want to appear ignorant or uninformed. Others of us don't ask questions because we don't want anybody, because we don't have anybody who has the answer. There's Nobody knows the answer to this question. Or if they do know it, they're not telling me the truth, or it's only the truth for today, and tomorrow the whole thing could change. So basically, I don't trust the answer, so I'm not going to ask. <laughs> but still, others of us, they don't ask because they resent the whole idea of asking questions in the first place because it gives people power over me, because I don't like you, because I don't like your mother, because I don't like your car, because I don't like what you said to me five years ago, I don't like the way you looked at me five years ago. You gave me that weird look and I have not forgotten. People. People people have these wild ideas. They don't ask questions. But some people, some, some of us resent having to ask this kind of a question in the first place. Over and over again, what do I do next? Where is the material for my job? What are the specs for this order? These questions may seem ordinary to some, but they rob us of our dignity if we have to ask them repeatedly. Hmm? There's a lot of that. People are smart. Why am I asking these questions 20 times a day? And worse, to a man who's half my age, who thinks his main job is to answer questions. I could use some help in some other way besides getting these questions answered is the way that goes inside. So we refuse to go after the very answers we need. And instead we get angry or go numb or do nothing or, as I mentioned, we just make stuff up. Yet if we repeatedly don't get plain, accurate, and complete answers to our questions, we start asking a different kind of question. Something like, is this... Why I'm here, dear God, this, is this what my life is about? Chasing down tiny answers to the same tiny questions that I asked yesterday and the day before and the day before, we lose heart. We lose heart. We lose our spirit. What the heck is this chasing down the same stinking answer day in, day out? I've had it. I'm out of here. And people either actually quit. Most of us don't. Most of us stay because we have to pay the bills. We have loved ones to support. And you know what? We may also genuinely genuinely like our job and the company we work in. If only the struggle would stop. If only work made more sense. So we stay, or at least our hands and our feet do. And we leave the better part of ourselves in the parking lot in our car with the windows slightly cracked so that that part is still alive 
and well when the workday is over and we come back and greet it. Mm. This is the way it is. Most of us want to earn our living in a meaningful way, doing our work, expressing excellence. Excellence is a motivator. But faced with the insanity of tidbits, I suppose is one way to say it, some of us go numb and others of us go ballistic. At the center of this scenario, this narrative that I'm sharing with you, is the question, who gets the power? Who gets the power to have the answers when and as they need them, complete, accurate, timely, without a special effort? If you are a CEO, you don't know this question, but it is in the heart of many. A long time ago, we learned that information is power. That is exactly why many people feel so disempowered when asking questions. And I will say others may feel a little bit too powerful when answering them. One way or another, asking and and ask, I beg your pardon, asking or answering questions, both of them, they go hand in hand, has become, can become a power play. It's highly destructive. It's destructive for the journey to excellence. Then we have the information hoarders, people who intentionally hoard information. Oh, my goodness. So the reason a visual workplace is needed is because people have too many questions. Some of them are asked. Many of them are not. And I want to make a case for it is understandable that people get upset when they can't get answers. And that upsetness goes underground. It just goes underground. Mm. Managers, executives, supervisors, trainers, you're responsible for that environment. You're responsible for the quality of being while people are at work. The quality of their spirit. Hmm? Let's look at the first building block, I-driven, and see how it helps. When you look closely at all the workplace questions you could possibly ask, you could possibly ask, My lips are not working that well today. (laughs) I don't know why. Or anybody can ask. You discover what I discovered. Only two questions drive them all. Only two questions. And this, these two questions, I'm going to give you one, talk about it, and then give you the other, are called driving questions because they drive the visual workplace. They drive the need the pull for information. The first of the two driving questions is, what do I need to know? That is, what do I need to know right now that I don't know in order to do my work? Or in order to do my work better, what information do I need? Need to know questions are the foundation of the visual workplace. But remember, we're not just talking about operators. We're talking about CEOs as well and marketing the marketing staff, what do I need to know? If you work in a factory, the urgent need 
to know question might be, where are my pliers? In a hospital, it might be, where are the patient charts? In an accounting office, it might be, where's the report I was working on? I gave it. Can't I have it back? Where is it? These are plain questions. And how many people will get a plain answer? Oh, there. There are my pliers. There is the card. There is the report. Instead, plain questions. In a factory, where are my pliers? What, what am I supposed to run next? What is the material for? Where is the material for that order? Where are the fixtures for the changeover? Where will the, these subassemblies? When will these? I beg your pardon. When will these subassemblies be ready in a hospital? Which patients do I look after today? Where are their charts? Will the doctors visit today? Does this kit contain everything I need? Which beds will be freed up? Who's my supervisor today? Where's my supervisor today? In accounting, where's the report? I just complained about it. (laughs) I just asked you. When is it exactly due? What appendix do I include? Who do I give these corrections to? And on and on. Niggly questions. Plain questions. The kinds of questions that when you don't get, you just go crazy. These are the questions that drive the answers that create workplace visuality. You Once you get your, the answers, and eventually you will, you translate those answers into visual devices. You embed those devices directly into your work area, into what we call building block, value your value field. So you never, ever, ever have to ask those questions again and no one has to answer them. And you keep doing this cycle after cycle. I want to say to you clearly, this is not methodology. This is a concept. This is a building block of the thinking. And it is saying, what do I need to know? That I is you. It does not say, what do we need to know? And now we're getting to why the mechanics of the eye are really important. If it did read, what do we need to know, then you would be faced with another meeting. If it did read, what do we need to know, you would then gather with others in your area to discuss what are the most important need-to-know questions and then to decide which ones should be turned into visual devices and that would inevitably bring you to what does the device look like, and you would then discuss that and vote on that, and some of you would be grumpy that your idea wasn't accepted. You would meet, present, discuss, analyze, plan, vote, meet again, get grumpy, meet again, get grumpier. But the question doesn't say that. It says, what do I need to know? And that I is you, and you're in the driver's seat of both recognizing your need to know whether it is as ordinary and sometimes embarrassing that I don't know where my pliers are or not. Whatever it is, what you need to know. You are in the driver's seat of that pull and also of the inventiveness that follows. You know better than anybody which questions you need answered. 
because they're your questions and you know your work. And you are going to get different questions if you're an expert, a veteran employee, as compared to new to the job. Of course you are. Don't try to homogenize that. Give people their visual voice. Let them create their visual devices. Yes, there's methodology that will say, as I will say, over the time that we spend together, hey, if you're an operator, your first question is going to be where? Where are pliers? Where's the material? Where are the specs? Where, where, where? The visual where. Some of you call that 5S. I call it the visual where because it isn't labels and lines. It's functionality. Anyway, we'll spend several, we'll, we'll spend 10 shows on 5S. And hopefully, I will be able to help a little bit by giving you other ways of revitalizing your 5S. But it's based on this. It's eye-driven. There's no need for you to present, discuss, analyze, plan, or vote on anything. Doing so would defeat the very purpose in your asking in the first place. You simply ask the crazy the question. <laughs> sorry, you simply ask the question that drives you crazy, and then you answer them. You ask those questions that drive you crazy, and then you answer them. You translate those answers into visual devices, so you never have to ask them again. Have confidence in that I. I do. That's you. That I is us, separately working together. The starting place for all visuality, for you and for us and for your company, is the I. And by the way, this holds true for all of those 10 doorways I mentioned before. Some of them will be for supervisors. Some of them will be for executives. Some of them will be for machinists and office folks in the office. Some of them will be for trainers. It is all I-driven. The visual devices you create are triggered by your own need to know. Your need to know drives those devices. The need leads. You and you alone are the person who decides what your need to know is and what the visual device will be. And as long as your visual device does no harm and doesn't interfere with someone else or their work. Other people do not need to agree with you. You are in control of your corner of the world, even if you're there only for eight hours. Now, I know what the exceptions are that are running through your head right now about what happens when the space is shared. We have an answer. I have an answer for you on that. I can't give it right now because I've got to get to the second question. And what happens if a person shifts areas? It's not a shared space, but they're moving around. That also has to be addressed. And I'll say for your first implementation cycle, so you know, when you're learning how powerful this is and how to use it in your own enterprise, yes, you are going to work very hard to keep the workforce stable within that area for four months. You may not succeed, but your focus will be on that. That will be part of the requisites for a good first cycle so you can see how it works. 
if you can't do it, there are adjustments that can be made. Please send me, me your questions. We have enough questions on this. We'll just spend a whole show. The language that's being created is the language of I. My need to know. This is what I need to know and no one needs to agree with me. In fact, you don't even need to know about it because I'm going to have the supplies near me and because you, plant manager, are going to give me improvement time. Maybe I'll only get it once a week or once every two weeks, but you're going to give me time to get those devices in place because the productivity gains, the quality gains, the risk evaporation is going to be worth it. And I'm going to own it, and I'm going to care about it, and I'm going to watch it, and I'm going to grow it. That's what I'm going to do. You know, many, many companies, one of the things that's going through your head right now, what about our teams? So let me just preface it by that. What about, we're team-based. We do team everything. Well, if you are self-directed teams, this eye-driven visuality will work better than a company that is making the transition from traditional manufacturing to 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 eye-driven uh, visuality or to excellence. But many companies, in my view, move much too quickly to teams, usually because the VP has gone to a nifty seminar and learned about that keys are key to world-class manufacturing. Which is true, except when Miss CEO comes back, she will often require teams by mandate. She calls everyone together in a big meeting room and says, bless you, bless you. We are now a team. And then small groups start meeting in small rooms. And well, it's, well, it's politics as usual. Whoever has the loudest voice rules the dominance hierarchy is alive and well, found a safe home now that we have teams. Teams are crucial for the journey to operational excellence, but they don't start that way. In far too many companies, people have be, have to brought up, be brought up to the place where they can function in teams. And that is a nice segue to bring you to the second driving question. The second driving question Building block one, the first one is, what do I need to know? Now you're going to hear the we, okay? The second driving question is, what do I need to share? What do I need to share? What do I know that others need to know that I need to share in order for them to do their work or in order for them to do their work safer, better, faster, at less cost? What do I need to share? What information do I need to share? Can you hear the we in that? Can you hear the team in that? The second question is still formulated on I. It is still I-driven. But now you are responding to other people's need to know. You are saying Clearly, something like this. How may I help you? How may I help you? At the heart of the second question is the recognition that each of us has knowledge and know-how that other people need in order for 
them to do their work or do it better, more safely. Whether those other people are co-workers or a supervisor and manager or an internal supplier or customer or an external supplier, they are all our colleagues. We are all on the same team, whether we ever sit together in the same room. They are all customers of the information that I have, says you. What do I need to share? Here's some examples from a factory. Planner. What do, what do I need to, I need to know what you're working on now. That's what I need you to share. I need to know when it's going to be ready. For a supervisor, if you're an operator, where is that order you just completed? Or if it, for a co-operator, hey, what's my next changer over? And, and where did you put that fixture you used earlier today? In a hospital, which patients are mine today? Where do you keep the blankets if you're a newcomer? Where's the emergency kit? Who are you, when are you sending Mr. Smith to x-ray down to see us? And on and on. Clarity, transparency, and information. Don't make me struggle. Don't make me work for it. People don't always ask directly for the answers they need. Sometimes you simply observe their motion. I remember, this is Sheila, Sheila Bowersmith, marvelous operator at Denison Hydraulics, now Parker Denison in Marysville, Ohio. She told me about this. I've received two phone calls from operators in my life, both from this plant. Sheila calls me and she says, hey, Gwendolyn, I've done, I've done the visual wear. I've done this out the gazoo. I want to do, I've done need to know. What can I do next? And I said, just watch for the motion of people around you because they have unanswered questions. Help them out. And so she, she called. She said, hey, I saw this today. Karen stopped by. She's our new planner. And I saw her walking through the whip. This was not a lean plant. I saw her walking through the whip and kind of grunting and groaning. I went over her, to her and I said, hey, hey, Karen, can I, uh, can I help you out? You seem to be looking for something. And she said, oh, I didn't want to disturb you. She was a new planner. I, 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 you do such great work. I don't want to disturb you. But I'm trying to figure out what you're working on now. Well, Sheila told her, well, uh, this is what I'm working on now. But Sheila was a great visual thinker. She was a scientist of motion. And as Karen got the answer she wanted, Sheila said, bingo, I'm going to make a visual device just for Karen to answer her need to know. Next time Karen came by, Sheila called her over and she said, look at this. See this little yellow square? This is where I'm putting my work order now. I welded a, a clip onto the, this is the side of her CNC machine. When you want to know what I'm working on now, you look and I will always put my work order there for you. That should make it easy. And you know what? If you don't see anything there, it means I'm not running anything. For sure. There's nothing in the machine. There's nothing waiting. Okay? Oh, wow, that's great, said Karen. And Sheila felt wonderful. She helped this other person. And she helped them through a visual device that's going to be now a part of the landscape of work. This is 
the two driving questions in action. What do I need to know? What do I need to share? And for some of you, you can take this home, this is back to work in the morning. If you're a supervisor, then ask your supervisors to keep track of the questions. Give them a little memo pad, the kind that flip op- flips open, that's the easiest. And on one side, you say to your fellow supervisors, you're the boss, right? You say, okay, I want you to keep track of all the questions that you're asked during the course of the day. Just make a little tick mark. If you want, write down the questions. And I want, on the flip side, keep track of all the questions you ask during the day. During this day today. And you might, you know, go easy and say, look, I'm looking for two volunteers. I'll take one, but if I have two, I'll be happier. And in front of people, you say, Oh, good. Thank you for volunteering. Here's what I want you to do. Here's a memo pad. The front of it, the questions that you are asked, and by the way, we call this your need to share. You can make out a little note of it. And on the flip side, the questions you ask. And by the way, I call this, you can own it yourself. I I call this, says you, your need to know. Just do that. Just for a couple of days. Just keep track. I'm curious. And come and see me and then see what they produce. You can do this with your operators as well. You can do it with your plant manager if you've got any power over him or her to see what's eating their lunch, what's eating their, what questions are eating them. What do I need to know? What do I need to share? But coming back to the central point, which is what this building block is about, it is about the I. It is about the power of the I. We are going to harness that, first of all, to do the investigation and to ask and ask that question, what do I need to know, and then to answer it. And you're going to get, as a result, let's say you are the CEO or the plant manager, you are going to get the beginning of a workplace that speaks. You are going to get visual devices that are created that have a purpose because the people, the person who needs them, who needs that device is a real person who put it in place because they need real answers. Don't worry right now about how this happens synergistically, how to deploy it. What I want you to get right now is the power of the I, the importance of the I. What do I need to know? What do I need to share? In some circumstances, you'll begin with need to share, especially if you have a very uh, experienced workforce. They're not going to confess or even be able to tell you what they need to know because they don't need to know anything, but they can share a great deal. They can help the newcomers out. So you can work it this way and work it that way. But the heart of visual thinking is eye-driven. This ability to see and recognize the holes in me that need answers and then to go out and get those answers and turn them into visual devices. And the hole in others where you create need-to-share devices. Just play with this and think about it and understand I spent pretty good part of the show, maybe 35, 40 minutes talking about the I. This I never goes away because you know what? It never goes away in us. This is the one we travel with 
This is what we carry around with us. This I, this me. It is a focal point. (laughs) It is the core around which we organize so much of our activity. And certainly at work, we all go to work to do well, to make a contribution. This is built into us. There's science behind that. This is not airy-fairy stuff or woo-woo stuff about it's built into us to do good. I will soon talk about how that is built in and how it's, it has to do with the mind being a pattern-seeking mechanism. That's hardwired into us as human beings. So much of visuality is capitalizing, first recognizing and then capitalizing on us as humans and what our mechanisms are, how we're structured, what happens hardwired and what is optional. This business about I is not optional. It's the way we're built. We are self-referential. We judge based on our experience. Others may persuade us to consider differently, but our prime judger is ourself. For me, this is the power in empowerment. How do you capture that? This is also the key to cultural transformation. Everyone's a problem solver. Everybody, every day. So we hear this thematically everywhere. Visuality, in my experience, is the direct route to take these so-called philosophical principles or slogans to some and make them active, activate them, actualize them. This is the visual workplace. So the visual workplace does address this hole in our information sharing, but it also supports us as individuals. All visual information sharing is the play between these two questions, your need to know, your need to share. That's why it works the outcome has a remarkable multiplying effect. The result is an impact far greater than simply counting the number of devices in a given work area. Like dropping a pebble in the stream, the ripples go out much further than the first splash. I get control over my corner of the world And so do you through visual devices. And the ripple goes out in circles, in concentric circles. And in a little while, they overlap. Now we're connected. This visual information sharing is connecting me with you. Your need to know, my need to know. And as soon as I connect with you, the need to share gets triggered. And so we begin to build this web or this net that ties the organization together in a field that is responsive, a fabric of intention, of improved performance, and yes, of goodwill. This network of connections that weaves the organization, the enterprise together, area by area, 
person by person, individual by individual, visual device by visual device. I've driven the first building block of visual thinking. And remember, this is ditto for managers and engineers. I'm doing an implementation now, surprisingly, because I, I try to avoid it. We've just entered our third year. We picked up another plant, and they want to do a conversion there as well. And I'm seeing this happen. But I'm going to leave that for another day. Right now, let me say how much I've enjoyed sharing this first principle, this first building block i driven with you. And let me invite you to send in your comments, your questions, your photos to me at Visual Workplace Radio. It's called radio at visualworkplace.com, radio at visualworkplace.com. Visit us on our website, visualworkplace.com. You'll find my books, articles, podcasts, everything. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. Thanks a lot for listening, and I look forward to the next time you bet I do. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak. Let the workplace speak.